My name is Rachel. I am married to Nathan, who is one of the elders here. We have three daughters. Um, and I worked out that it's been about two and a half years since I've stood up here with people who are actually physically in front of me. So this is actually really exciting because I had the joy of a pre-record and the joy of um, preaching on Zoom in the loft where Joan Lindley, I, I texted her straight after to say, you were a gift from God to me, Joan Lindley, because her face was the only face on my screen staring at me. And she remained awake throughout. <laughs> And for some reason, she had bright red lipstick on and she smiled throughout and nodded. So I was always like, Joan, you're amazing. So anyway, it's lovely to be here, is my long-winded way of uh, being a tardy timekeeper. So anyway, uh, today I am going to be continuing our series on the book of Judges. And every single sermon for the past few months has pretty much started with um, the same thing, which is the Israelites had got themselves into a vicious circle, a vicious cycle, where the people of Israel worshipped God, served God, but then eventually they succumbed to their sin. Then their sin enslaved them. They were oppressed by the Philistines. And then after some time, they remembered what God had done previously. They cried out to God. They were sorry for their sin. And then God would raise up a judge to save them from their oppressors. And they would go back to serving God and loving God. And the cycle would repeat over and over and over again. And the judge I am going to be looking at today is Samson. Now, Derek began Samson's story last week. And if you have not had the joy of listening to Derek Orridge's sermon from last week, I urge you to do it. We, Derek, we spent a whole five minutes at Life Group this week talking about how wonderful your sermon was, how much we got out of it, and how hilarious you are. And Derek, I can't thank you for your Dad's Army references enough. It was brilliant. So if you haven't listened to Derek, you must go back and get the first part of the story. Derek talked about um, Samson in chapter 13. And at that, in chapter 13, once again, the people of Israel have rebelled against God. They were oppressed by the Philistines, but God had a plan to raise up another judge for the purpose of delivering his people. But there was something a little bit different this time about God's plan. The first thing was, this time, the Israelites were not crying out to be rescued. They were not crying out to be saved. And secondly... Uh, the judge was chosen before they were even conceived and before they were even born. Yet they had a unique and special calling on their life. And at the end of chapter 13, Derek left us with a great sense of expectancy with the arrival of Samson. At last, could this be the end of the vicious cycle? The scene is definitely set for a great judge and leader, perhaps the most powerful of all. But of course, as we know, because this is a story that has been told time and time and time again in Sunday school, Samson doesn't turn out to be that great leader. And at Sunday school, we've always seemed to have read the story of Samson as a standalone story. But when you read the story of Samson in the context of this series, and we've looked at uh, all of the previous judges, when you read Samson in the context of the book of Judges, there's something really confusing and perplexing about his story. Because we've had a line of judges who, despite their weaknesses and despite their failings, have ultimately been faithful to God. 
Even when what God has asked them to do has been illogical and has made no sense, they've still followed God's calling, God's plan, and ultimately, God has then used him, used the judge to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. So that's why when you read the story of Samson, it really makes no sense that after that long line, the next judge is Samson, when we're expecting him to be the greatest of all. Because Samson, quite frankly, on one hand, is a brute. He is violent. Actually, Nathan described him as a narcissistic psychopath, and I thought that was a really good definition. He is violent. He is unteachable. He is impulsive. He is selfish. He is lustful. He doesn't keep his vows. He's mean. He's arrogant. He's vindictive. When you read about Samson, there's not an awful lot to like about the man. But at the same time, he has... He has this great anointing on his life, this great calling. He's consecrated, and God continues to fill him with his Holy Spirit. He has God-given potential, but his life just doesn't line up with that. So what can we learn about Samson for ourselves? And if you want to turn with me to Judges chapter 14, uh, and we'll start at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. So, in that section of the story... Samson has been down to Timnah. Now, it doesn't say why he's gone to Timnah or what, his, what, the point of was his, what the point was of his first visit. Maybe he had heard that the Timnah girls looked good. But he had been down, and when he was down in Timnah, he saw a young Philistine woman, and she caught his eye. And so much so did she catch his eye that he wanted her as his wife. Now, his parents are understandably concerned because, of course, before he was born, they'd had a visit from the angel of the Lord who told them that your son is going to be the one that brings the deliverance of the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines. So when he comes back and says, I've met myself, my new wife, and she's a Philistine, that's just not, that makes no sense. That's not, surely that's not God's plan for Samson. So so they say, why can't you find an acceptable woman? Why can't you marry one of ours? Why are you straying? Why are you going to go off with someone that doesn't share the same God as us? But the thing is, what Samson wants, Samson gets. 
So he tells his dad, she's the one for me. So they go back to Timna with, he goes back to Timna with his mother and his father. And it is verse five that I find particularly fascinating. So he's on his way to Timna to get himself a wife, but it says he approached the vineyards of Timna. Why is Samson on his way there approaching the Timna vineyards? And that is my first point. Stay out of the vineyard. See, as Derek explained to us last week, the angel of the Lord had told his parents to raise Samson as a Nazarite. And being a Nazarite meant that he needed to take a Nazarite vow. So from birth, Samson can't cut his hair. No razor must touch his head. He can't touch a dead animal. And it's really clear that he is forbidden to have anything to do with wine, fermented drinks, vinegar that's made from wine, grape juice. It's quite clear, it's quite strict. No grapes, no raisins, and it even makes clear, and don't even eat the skins or the seeds of grapes. So, despite having taken that Nazarite vow, we find him in the vineyard, approaching it. And what do we find in a vineyard? Well, we find grapes. At this point in the story, Samson is dabbling with compromise. He is showing disdain for his Nazarite vower. He is going to a place where he really shouldn't have been. If you're not meant to drink wine and you're not meant to eat grapes, then why are you approaching a vineyard? And what happens next is that we read in verse 5, a young lion came roaring toward him. And at that point, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He kills the lion, he tears it apart with his bare hands, and it really is quite the picture. Now, I don't know about you, but if, a, an, if an excitable dog comes towards me, I, I always stumble, sometimes trip. But Samson, a roaring lion, comes towards him, and he just picks it up, and it says, and he just tears it apart like a young goat. And I thought, well, I'd find it quite difficult to tear a young goat apart as well. But I think the image is that he just does it with so little effort. He just tears it apart because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Um, but for Samson, the vineyard is a place of compromise, and waiting there is the lion, the roaring lion, waiting to devour him in the place where he really shouldn't have been. But for Samson, the compromising doesn't stop there because it tells us that he doesn't tell the people what he's done. He keeps it a secret. He protects the compromise. He doesn't tell his parents that he's, done it, that he's been in the vineyard and he's killed the lion. And then it goes on to say that sometime later, he returns to the vineyard. So he goes back to his place of, uh, of compromise. And when he gets there, he goes to look for the lion. And of course, the lion is dead. And the lion is now a carcass. And an amazing thing has happened, a beehive, he doesn't find maggots, he finds a beehive, and it's full of honey, sweet, lovely honey that looks good to the eye. But he's taken a Nazarite vow. He's not meant to have anything to do with a dead animal, but that doesn't stop Samson because the honey looks good. So he puts his hand in, he takes the honey, and he eats it. And the compromise gets worse because he takes the honey to his mum and dad. And he makes his mum and dad complicit in it because they are, have a Nazarite vow as well. So without even realising, they're complicit to everything that's happen, happening. If only Samson had stayed out of the vineyard. And I think it's the same for us. 
1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What better place to prowl around in than in our place of compromise? See, the thing is, in our hearts, we will know exactly what our vineyard is. We know our place of compromise. We know where we shouldn't be. And for each of us, our place of compromise is going to look really different. I know for me, at the moment, my vineyard is a conversation that I know I could instigate and that I know I could bring about. I could do it really easily, really subtly. But I know that conversation would end up in big compromise. I know that actually that could take me down a path and into a vineyard that really I don't need to be in because that's not what God wants for me. God wants me on the road to Timna. Maybe for you, it's a website. That's your place of compromise. You know if you go there, it might be a little thing, but then it all spirals out of control in a rabbit hole where that's your place of compromise and God doesn't want you there. He wants you on the road to Timna. Maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's an actual physical building. Maybe you know, if I go in that building, that's compromise for me. I need to keep out of that vineyard. Or maybe it's a relationship that you know in your heart, that relationship is just going to be compromise. I just need to keep out of that vineyard, keep out of that vineyard and get back on the road to Timna. And for Samson, the thing is, the lion and the beehive, they look really good. And I think all of those things, the vineyards for us, they look really good. I'll be really honest. The conversation that I could have, I know I would really enjoy it. And I know it would make me feel, for a short time, it would make me feel really good. It would make me feel better. But I know that's not where God wants me. He doesn't want me in that conversation. He wants me there. So despite it looking good, we need to turn around. Stay out of the vineyard. Don't let the devil have a stronghold. So the story continues, and Samson arrives in Timna, and it's customary for bridegrooms to make a feast. So that's what he does. And when he appears at the feast, he is given 30 companions. Uh, and what he decides to do, I just love this. I mean, the arrogance is unreal. You have to hand it to him. And he says to his new companions, let me tell you a riddle. And uh, And he says, but let's make it interesting. How about if you can solve my riddle, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. But if you can't solve my riddle, then then you need to give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. And you have got until the end of the feast to solve it. So he gives them the riddle, and the riddle is this. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Now, of course, we know that the answer to the riddle is the honey that's come out of the lion's carcass. But no one else does, because Samson's kept that a secret. No one knows what Samson found in the lion. And he is very confident that no one will solve his riddle. So for three days, the companions don't manage to solve it. And then on the fourth day, it starts to get a bit serious for them. So they go to Samson's new wife. And they say to her, coax him. Find it out. But if you don't find it out, then we're going to burn you and your father. Have you really invited us to this wedding to rob us? Now, surprise, surprise, Samson's wife decides, I'm going to give this a good go. And I'm going to see if I can solve the riddle. So what does she do? She gets to work straight away, and she throws herself on him. 
She sobs. It even says in the Bible, I think this is brilliant, you don't really love me, you hate me. I'm like, that's just timeless, that phrase. (laughs) Here's another phrase, Nathan. Nag, nag, manipulate, sob, nag. Familiar? Okay. And it says on verse... I've, I've matured, though. 18 years next month. 18 years. Okay. But verse 17, it says, She cried the whole seven days of the feast. What a joyous bride. (laughs) I can understand where she's coming from, though. And on the seventh day, Samson's had enough. And he tells her the answer to the riddle. And what does she do? She tells her people. And of course, the companions come to him. They tell him the answer. And he is furious. Because he knows that they've got the answer from his wife. And at that moment, the spirit of the Lord comes in power, comes upon him in power. Samson goes down to Eshkelon and strikes down 30 men. He takes their garments, he takes their belongings, and he goes back to where the companions are, and he gives everything to them. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he leaves his wife and he goes back home to mum and dad. All because they solved his riddle. But however, it says that later on, Samson goes back to visit his wife. And when he tries to enter her room, her father won't let him in. And we'll pick that up now at Judges 15, verse 2. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. And my second point is this. Don't set fire to foxes. (laughs) I know, Nathan came up with that one. Anyway, I think it is safe to say that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half-hearted about Samson. He reacts immediately, immediately, to absolutely everything. And he is a man that is completely led by his emotions. He's well aware of the injustices performed against him. He's very in touch with how he feels. He knows exactly what the offences are that have been caused towards him. He knows what he wants. He knows how he perceives things to be. And he knows, and he just, he just reacts. He never stops to hear or to consider another viewpoint. It's always all about him. And his reactions are extreme. When the Philistines solve the riddle, Samson's reaction is, because he feels he's been tricked, let's not forget that, because it's all about him, he decides, I'm going to go, I'm going to kill people, 
I'm going to take their belongings, I'm going to give them away, and then I'm going to go back home to my mum and dad, and I'm going to leave my wife. All because someone, unfairly in his eyes, solved his riddle. When he discovers that his wife, who he did leave, has been given to another man, he declares immediately, I have the right to get even. So, what does he do? I mean, I love, I mean, it's, it's an awful story, but I love this image, okay? He is so cross that he goes and gathers, doesn't kill, doesn't hunt, he gathers 300 foxes. And then he puts their tails together in pairs. So that means he is so cross that he is prepared to put together 150 pairs of foxes. I mean, the image of this man in a fury doing that, it's quite, it's no, it's quite the undertaking, really. But not only does he gather the foxes together in pairs, but he puts 150 torches, one between each tail, sets them on fire, and then shoes them off. That is one cross man. That is one man that is reacting. And you can just imagine him just standing back and going, well, you shouldn't have done that, should you? As the foxes run wild, destroying the crops, destroying the grain, destroying the olives, destroying the vineyards, it wrecks absolute chaos because the wife that he no longer wanted was given to another man. And I think it's really easy to read this story and just shake your head and go, oh, Samson. That was a bit of an overreaction. And I think, in fairness, it, that was a bit of an overreaction. But it's quite easy to distance ourselves from that and think, oh, what a fool. Why does he react so quickly? But how often do we do that ourselves? How often are we quick to react? I know God's spoken to me that, about this this month. I have seen myself react really quickly to lots of things. Um, and that's been quite humbling to realise, oh my word, I'm, I, I've got a bit of Samson in me. Uh, I haven't burnt any foxes though. Uh, but a crossword, a text or a WhatsApp that's just a little bit short, a little bit erupt, an angry email, I'm guilty of those. I can go really fast on those. But I know that when, I, no, I know that when I'm at my worst of that, when I'm setting fire to foxes, I know that's when I'm making it all about me. I know that when I'm really focusing on how I am feeling, when I'm dwelling on why I am cross, why that person has made me feel like that, why I am offended, why they're wrong, I'm really good at that one, why they're wrong, instead of taking a step back, taking a deep breath, and looking to God in the midst of that scenario, and thinking and seeking him in that situation. Praying, praying about it instead of reacting, carefully considering it. Because the thing that happens and the thing that, we, the thing that can happen with us as well is when we set fire to foxes, there can be devastating consequences for other people. For Samson, the devastating consequence of his reaction was that his wife, when the Philistines asked, who has done this? The Philistines find out that it was Samson's wife. And what do they do? They get her, they get her father, and they burn them to death because Samson was cross. His reaction caused the death of people. But for us, what impact do we have on other people 
when we are led by our emotions? How many people get caught in the crossfire? Sometimes we know, because that becomes abundantly clear to us, that we've upset people and that there have been consequences. But so often, we just never find out, have no idea how many people we have hurt as a consequence of our reaction. But this is the good news, okay? Despite Samson's chaotic life and his very questionable life choices, God still uses him. And my third point is this. God can use donkeys and their jawbones. So the Philistines go up to Judah. And when they get, to Jude, when they get up to Judah, the men of Judah say, hang on a minute, why are you here? Why have you come to fight with us? And the Philistines make it really clear, we are not here to fight with you. We don't want a battle. We just want Samson. And we want to take Samson prisoner. So 3,000 men of Judah go up to the cave where Samson is. And when they turn up, they say to him, don't you realize what you've done? The Philistines are our rulers. What were you thinking? So they come to, so Samson wants to know, well, why are you here? Are you here to fight me? Are you here to kill me? And they establish that they're not there to kill him, but they are there to capture him and take him to the Philistines. So Samson agrees, and they tie him up, and they deliver him to the Philistines. And we'll pick that up now in Judges 16, verse 14. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him, shouting, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened, opened up hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called Emhakore and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. How does Samson kill the lion? How does Samson kill 30 Philistines and steal their clothes? How does Samson free himself from his bindings? And how does Samson strike down a thousand men with a donkey jawbone? He does it quite simply because the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. God is at work in all of it. He, he is giving Samson superhuman strength because that is exactly what God needs to cause division between Israel and the Philistines. Samson and his character flaws plus his super strength is going to bring about God's plan. And we were told about God's plan right back at the beginning of chapter 14 and verse 4 when it when, when we were told that all along when his parents were, when his parents were worried about uh, the girl in Tumna. And it, 
And it says, this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. So right back there, we knew that actually the fact that God wanted Samson to marry the girl from Timnah, that was all part of God's plan anyway, even though it didn't make sense to his parents. This division is exactly what the Israelites need, although at this moment in time, they don't realize it. They don't realize that the division that's being caused between themselves and the Philistines uh, through Samson is exactly God's plan to save them. God needs to divorce them from their idols and from the world that they currently live in, the world that they currently inhabit. Now, I have really struggled uh, when I've been reading this section because for so long I, I spent ages just thinking, I don't get it. I really, really, really don't get it why you are using Samson. Why are you choosing Samson? He's such an unlikable character. Why is God choosing to use this flawed person? Shouldn't God be trying to use someone that just has a few weaknesses and a few failings? Shouldn't he be looking for a good person? Shouldn't he be looking for a godly man or a godly woman to use to fulfill his plan? Someone with the right beliefs, someone with the right behaviors. But if that was the case, then God would be limited by the humans. Because then God wouldn't be able to work through grace. God works powerfully through sinners, through sinful situations. He keeps his promises to bless us in the dark times, not just when things are going right. He doesn't need perfect people doing good things to fulfill his plans. He can use anyone in any situation, and he does. So when Samson picks up the donkey jawbone, the spirit of the Lord is already upon him. The spirit is with him. And yet again, we see him, he's breaking his Nazarite vow because he's not meant to touch anything. He's not meant to touch a, touch a dead body, but there he is picking up a bone. And it's with that bone that God powerfully brings his plan into fruition because despite that breaking of the vow by holding the donkey jawbone, Samson kills 1,000 men with a bone. with a bone that he shouldn't be touching. And he's causing the needed division so that ultimately the Israelites will cry out to him because that's what God needs to happen. He needs the Israelites to realize that they need God. And it's the same for us. Romans 8 verse 28 says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Samson is gifted by the Spirit in a really powerful way. Yet his life shows no fruit of the Spirit. In Samson's life, there's no patience, there's no peace, there's really no self-control. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we should be aware of this for ourselves. The gifts of the Holy Spirit can be at work in us powerfully too. We might stand at the front and preach. We might lead kids' work, we might lead another ministry, we might be life group leaders, we might volunteer, we might actively help people, we might be really busy, and the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us with our gifts. But yet, our inner and our personal lives can be a complete wreck like Samson's. But the hope and the good news is this, 
God still loves us. God still uses us. So if the band would like to come up, please, that would be great. And this week, can I just urge you just to spend some time in Galatians 5 and really think about the fruit of the Spirit and think about where you are in your life. Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there patience? Is there kindness? Is there goodness? Is there faithfulness? Is there gentleness? Is there self-control? And if those things aren't there, bring it back to God. Don't be like Samson.